Nancy Hensley, welcome to Winning with Data. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to connect here with my co-host, Alec Coughlin, today. Um, you have had a lot of interesting experience in the data world and in the sports world. So let's jump right into it. I want to ask about product market fit, about the uniqueness of the sports market. What might listeners not know about what it takes to build a data company in the sports world and why the sports world is so unique and where the sports world is really heading in terms of its maturation and how it uses data. There's a lot of hype out there. There's a lot of articles out there. There's a lot of investment out there, but you've actually lived it. Yeah. So a lot to unpack there. What makes a sport company unique and successful, I think, in data is a lot of things, right? It starts with speed and quality because in sports, things are happening in real time. They're happening 24 hours around the clock in sports there's global sports everywhere that's the foundational right speed and quality that has to be there but also the consumability and the innovations in and around data so how we collect that how you collect that data um, using new methods like computer vision which really helps you scale that and enhance the human side of the collection process and then really how um, how you can consume it, right? Not just with APIs, but with really interesting applications that provide new insights to broadcasters, to teams and leagues, to sports betters, right? Uh, I think all of that is what makes it unique. The more unique side is the speed, right? <laughs> you know, like I worked in data and AI at IBM for years, and it was less about speed, but in in sports, it's all about speed, right? Everything has to happen in real time because that's what the consumers are demanding, especially on the sports betting side of the business. There's a lot we could double click into there, but I'd love to think about types of value. User experience in an application or within a product is one thing. Customer experience is another. Uh, feedback loops of new features, onboarding, implementation. There's a lot that can impact uh, the success of a company beyond just is their product useful. What have been your biggest lessons about what matters most for that in general and in sports in particular? I've always been a big believer in design thinking. So I come from that um, at IBM. I, I brought that forward throughout my career because it forces you to really focus on the client and that's going to help you get better product market fit. So I think having a lot of grounded knowledge on who you're building and what problems you're trying to solve and who you're building it for is just so, so essential. And that's what's going to make a huge difference. On the product market fit side, you know, I got to, I was lucky. I got to learn from the best. Um, I got to be mentored by people like Sean Ellis. If you haven't read his book, Hacking Growth, you should. And, you know, he taught us things to like asking the hard questions that you don't necessarily want to ask. Like if this product went away, would it be okay? No product manager wants to ask that question, but it leads you to true understanding of whether you're actually nailing it or not and the ability to fail fast. You got to be able to do that. I think a lot of people think that unicorns are born unicorns. They forget about all of the failures that Airbnb, that Uber, that Facebook, that Instagram went through to actually get to where they are. Um, I think all of those are just incredibly important. What are some of your favorite tough questions that, that companies should ask themselves? Yeah, I think that the one that, that I told you probably is the number one, um, whereas you literally ask a client. If this product went away tomorrow, would you care? That is enlightening, <laughs> sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. Talking more about how much they use it or how much they depend on it, right? Do they see this as essential or do they see this as a nice to have? That also tells you a lot about what you've been able to do, right? 
if they can literally tell you that they've been able to solve problems or create new opportunities with it, if they can freely tell you that, then then you've also know you've nailed it. Like, and I think that's what makes some of the methods like Amazon had with working backwards and writing the press release, or there's another method where you as a product manager write a letter to who as from a customer perspective of here's here's all the things your product did for me. Like I think being rooted in that is so important because it helps you have clarity on the value of your product. And that is really the the foundations for success and product market fit and growth. Product led growth means a lot of things to a lot of different people. It's it's an admirable thing to aim at, but it's very hard to do in actuality. It's very hard to not just ping pong between being engineering led and being sales led. Um, oh yeah, you've had some really interesting titles that tell me that you probably know a lot about product led growth. <laughs> um, so, so you know, what is the kind of arc of skill sets that you've built taught you about what that really means in the practical world? You know, I think it's also important too to to realize that the foundations of product-led growth actually go back to those growth hackers in the early days, right? The people who are doing things extremely differently, the people who are insanely curious about what are those levers that you could actually create to accelerate growth. And that really challenged a lot of traditional product management thinking. And when I was bringing in these concepts into IBM on growth hacking, like the first time you get people like just make this face like, what the hell are you talking about with growth hacking, right? Because the, I think it was the word the hacking that threw people off. But in reality, what you're trying to do is understand all aspects of growth opportunities from everything from searching for the product to trying the product to your experience with understanding how quickly you can adapt and get value from the product to renewals to pricing, everything, right? And so the characteristics of somebody who is really going to be good at product-led growth start with insane curiosity, right? Like a, and almost like a, I used to call it our treasure hunt, right? Like we are on a treasure hunt for all of the little levers we can pull for growth and across all aspects of the customer experience and journey. And I think if you look at it that way, you kind of see the fallout of of product managers. There are some that kind of fall into the really good at driving delivery with the development team, which you need, which a lot of product owners do. And then the product managers who really understand that even if they build what they think is the perfect product to the requirements and specifications, but they don't really have that insane curiosity about growth, that kind of falls short, right? And so it's always been difficult to find the unicorn or product managers that that kind of that are good at both delivery and growth. When I was at IBM, we actually separated out the team. So we had a team of people that just focused on like what we called core product management, which was let's make sure we can get this delivered on time that the development team understands the requirements and translate that correctly. And then we have a team of people that's just focused on growth. They were like the, we were like the growth ninjas. And it was really cool. Uh, it, I really turned around their thinking about it. But I, like I said, I think it goes back to the roots of growth hacking, of, of the things that those people taught us in the early days. And so to jump in on that real quick, because it just reminds me of something that Chamath Palihapitiya just started talking about regarding applying large language models that can code to create software at a clip that we've obviously never seen before. How do you feel large language models that can code could, should, and might be embraced by modern product mark, you know, managers? And do you think that they're generally open to it? Or do you think it's viewed more of like, it's a threat right now. We're not really so sure. Like, what are your thoughts on on that in general? 
I've seen a lot of openness to it. I see it. I see that as a hack, right? A gr- another growth hack in the development cycle. You could also use like things like ChatGPT to write stories, like so the product owners can accelerate the writing of all the product stories that they have to write. And really, to me, it gives you superpowers. So it allows you to focus on the things that you should focus on. I mean, one of the things in product management is you can get so buried in the administrative side of the things that you do, which is so important, right? But it takes away from the FaceTime of being with a client or you know, understanding who you're building it for or getting user feedback, yeah. right? So I think anywhere you can create those growth hacks and using things like generative AI and chat GPT and all the tools where you could do that, you should absolutely do that. And to build on that, and, and I'm not suggesting this is necessarily true, but if waterfall, right, was a way of doing things back in the day, right, that led to a certain type of approach by a certain type of product you know, manager that eventually was, it evolved into something more agile and more growth hacky and, and what have you. Do you think there's a similar you know, large trend that could potentially be identified that's starting to happen in this area? And if so, what do you think the difference is between someone who has a legacy piece of software in a certain space versus somebody who's building something to disrupt that piece of software within that ecosystem? And how does that kind of shake out in terms of the way LLMs could potentially you know, be embraced and, and the pace with which these changes might take shape? Yeah, and I've definitely been on both sides where I've been in a waterfall and more heritage product and then been in the more disruptive space. In the disruptive space, it's all about speed, right? So you've got to be first to market. You've got to disrupt. You've got to fail fast. You've got to, you've got to get out there with something, get the feedback and improve upon it, right? And so in those cases, I think that a lot of the hacks that you can do with AI capabilities are really going to help you, right? In probably the more traditional heritage space, then it there you're balancing protecting revenue a lot of times, right? So you've got this core group of clients, you know, in the early days of as we were shifting more to SaaS and cloud when I was at IBM, you know, we had so many clients that represented a huge part of our revenue in the financial space that we're not going to go to cloud in the early days. And so how do you innovate and disrupt while you're still protecting this core base? That was a heck of a balance. <laughs> There's a, a lot of noise to, to sift through to get to the signals of what what is actually a valuable product in sports and data. And, and both of those industries have a lot of what is also everywhere that is folks really only speaking to their unique model and their unique situation. It's human nature. How do you recommend young companies find the signal and all of that noise and understand what's a painkiller, what's a vitamin, and, and what is actually going to create a, a very sticky product? A lot of user research, an absolute ton of user research. Get yourself some great designers. Have UX from the very, very, very beginning. Like, Don't bring them in halfway through the process. Bring them in from the beginning because they will see things differently. They can drive out the questions to get the feedback differently than a product manager can. It's just they have magical skill sets that product managers just don't have. That is absolutely essential. Um, and I've been lucky to work with some amazing uh, product designers and UX people over the years that that I think have always been very informative. And I came from a traditional product management space, and I think I definitely had my skepticism around that process and the design thinking process and how somebody could walk into a room full of clients and flush out prioritized requirements when they knew nothing about the space. 
right? <laughs> like, but it is a magical process and it absolutely works. And I think that is really important. The second part I think is more around consumability. And I don't think we think enough about that. And so when you don't lean heavy enough into the user feedback and the design and you let engineers lead that, you may not get the right user experience because you're too close to it and you're not realizing that somebody's using this in their day job and it has to be a part of their workflow and it has to fit into their workflow and be very, very consumable. And that I think is is so important to keep a focus on. Like, is this person going to use it? Now in sports, you know, we've designed a lot of stuff for the the coaching staff, right? And some things I think really are still much more consumable at the analyst level, not at the coaching level. My hope is at some point, we actually shift more to the athlete and we give them more user content and analytics that they can consume. Because after all, they're the ones like in my business, they're the ones stepping out on the pitch. They have to know what to do. They have to know how to manage their own performance better. Um, So how can I take all of the data around wearables and biometrics and various things and give them something that's valuable to help them optimize their performance. So then the coach is just more looking at the strategic part. So I think consumability is absolutely everything in sports and any kind of resistance comes from that. Now, the nice thing in women's sports is that there's a lot more open-mindedness and open-mindedness is the front door to innovation. So we don't get stuck in the, we've always done it this way mode we're more in the, what if we did it this way? Uh, And I think that's going to lead to faster innovation. Uh, You started to touch a little bit on democratization of data. And I think about that a lot, obviously, Um, but especially with the the changing user personas in front offices, there's a whole generation of of front office executives who have data skills from school or from previous jobs. I I think about IBM Watson as like the original democratization of data uh, buy rather than build platform. And I don't think it gets talked about enough uh, for that role. I, I don't think Data Robot or Amazon SageMaker would be possible if, if Watson hadn't come before it. Um, so what are your strongest opinions about how data get, gets democratized and how stakeholders at, at organizations should think about the way that they do or don't access data insights? Yeah, when I think about this, I actually think back to, I came from business intelligence And watching that evolve has taught me a lot about the democratization of data and analytics in an organization. So we, you know, at the time had a company called Cognos that we had acquired. And Cognos was a pretty in-depth tool that just offered so much functionality. But maybe there were five or six people in an organization that could use it, right, that could get the benefit of that data and insight. And then Tableau comes along, right? And what Tableau does is it makes it so much easier for everyone to be a data expert, for everyone to be able to create visualizations, for everyone to do analytics. And I think that's really, really key is the democratization, again, it goes back to that consumability. Can more people use it? Can more people benefit from it? And that's really key. And I think the early days in Watson is what we were trying to do. And I was part of the some of the very early releases of Watson, some of the tools and the frameworks that we were trying to get out there to accelerate things like productionalizing AI inside of products, which when I got out and actually did, I found it was really, really hard. <laughs> so that I think is, you're right, it's it's so essential to it. But in my experience too, is that, you know, coming from a maker to actually building stuff with it was really interesting. And um, it was one of the goals that I had was that like, I want to stop talking about AI and actually get into a company where I'm building it. Gave me a whole different perspective on how hard it was. (laughs) 
you said open-mindedness is the front door to innovation. That's such a cool phrase. What do you think to yourself when you hear or see an organization say, no, no, the data people will build the data things and everyone else will just consume it. They won't interact with it. They don't, they won't work within it and they don't need to. Yeah. I think then you're, you're squashing insights in your organization. The more people that have it, the better. We don't want to have data kingdoms anymore, right? We want data champions throughout all the organizations. We want to empower everybody. And it's the same thing with sports. Like, I don't want to just empower the coach and the, and the staff. I want to empower the athlete. Because then I think that you're going to get a fully optimized team on the pitch than you could before. How can a coach think about all of their players and the game strategy and the opposition analysis effectively? I mean, they can, but they can only execute to so so much, right? Because there's physical people on the field that have to be part of that execution. And I think in a business, it's the same way, right? You can have key leaders and analysts that understand the business, but if you don't have everybody that has the same kind of insights, everywhere from like, especially the people who are touching the customer, right? If they don't have the insights around that customer, then you're just going to have a completely different experience. And I think the world's definitely shifted and evolved around that. And you see the tools, especially in the customer experience side, that really enable that. I would love one to two book recommendations each for folks at startups trying to have product-led growth and for folks working in front offices of sports teams wanting to work more closely with data. Well, definitely Hacking Growth by Sean Ellis, because I think that that gives you a good overview of product-led growth and analysis. On the data side, it's kind of specific to sports where you get a lot of in-depth. I mean, Moneyball obviously is a really good one that kind of is the beginning of the whole analytics revolution. But there's, I mean, I'm in specifically in soccer. So I've got a bookshelf of, you know, soccernomics and all of the other things that dive more deep into it. Oh, Data Smart is a good one. Gore Casting was a good one. So, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch. There's a bunch. I, I, I heard of those too. So that, that's two great recommendations. <laughs> Well, if we're speaking about the bookshelf, I have to know the Believe license plate. Is that what that says? Is there yeah, a story behind that? My little Ted Lasso sign there. <laughs> that one in my, uh, I don't think you can see it because it's above it. Is I've got a sign that says everything is figure outable. Got to have that attitude. <laughs> yes. Nancy, thank you so much for your time. It's great to have you on Winning with Data, and we'll have to have you back soon. Excellent. Happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>